I got to tell you a little secret before I start my sermon this morning. I didn't expect to make it past 30. The way preachers were preaching, and Dave, I'm looking right at you because you would have been in that age group of preachers preaching when I was a teenager. Jesus was coming back before I get my driver's license. And so I used to pray to God. I used to pray, Lord, I just want to be 16. Just let me drive the car once by myself before you come back. I'm serious. That was a very sincere prayer of my heart. And then it was like, oh, Jesus, I just want to graduate from high school. Please let me get through this. Let me, and I would have these things. I had no plans past the age of like 30. I didn't think I was going to make it to 30. Isn't that interesting? And now I'm watching because it's less, well, it's a little over a year from now. I'm going to hit, I don't even know if I can say it, you guys. 50. I'm going to hit 50 in like a year and a half. 50. I'm like that to me, I'm living on borrowed time, right, man? I got 20 years extra here in my brain, right? That's totally where I'm at. But that's really important because what I want to talk to you about this morning about finding the good life is about God's saving grace. And you know what? If I'm living on borrowed time, that makes this even more important to me. Because you know what? You and I, whether you're at home, whether wherever you are, with you're in the sound of my voice, even if you watch this, you know, three days from now or a month from now, we're all in the same boat. Do you know that? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, um, you know, where you are in life. We're all in the same boat. Now, uh, we're talking in this sermon series about finding the good life. It's all about discipleship as a journey of grace. It's based on uh, Dr. David Busick. He's one of our general superintendents. Um, Way, Truth, and Life, a journey, discipleship as a, a journey of grace. And last week we talked about who remembers what we talked about? Sneaky grace, right? We talked about prevenient grace. That's what the you know, wise theologians call God's grace that goes before. I like sneaky grace because I can pronounce it a whole lot better and easier and understand it. It's grace that sneaks up on us and gets to us. God's Holy Spirit before we even realize it. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome that God loves every single human being that much? You know, God's sneaky grace shows up in the crossroads of life. He shows up among those of us who are willing to camp out when people have crossroads. You know, when your neighbor has a crossroads in life and you camp out there and you walk with them through those tough, hard, difficult things, God's there. You're bringing God's Holy Spirit. You're a reminder of the holy in that situation. When the opportunity presents itself, God shows up in the curiosity of people who are looking for answers to the tough questions of life. How many of us have asked some of those questions in our lifetime? The whys. God's there looking in those. What about in authentic relationships, living alongside with the people around you, whether it's at your job or with your families or, or your neighborhoods, when we live life next to people who aren't like us, we bring God's Holy Spirit to them in those relationships and in the convictions that we have who act upon those things. 
I remind us of God's sneaky grace this morning so that we can all stand that all of this is God's plan. It's his initiative. Remember, I think I said this last week, God didn't have plan B. I got to tell you, I was, I was in, in Pomeroy one, one day, uh, and every once in a while I I would have one of our laymen come up and preach. And oftentimes it was when I was gone. So I didn't very oftentimes get to hear the sermons because this was before we did the online and the live stuff and we didn't record anything, you know, in Pomeroy, we didn't do that. We didn't have a DVD ministry or anything like that. But, you know, I got to hear uh, Ernie Kimball preach one Sunday morning and um, he was probably church board secretary at the time, I think there. And he got up and he says, I hope you realize God never had a plan B. And it just hit me in the face. God did not wake up The day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree, God didn't wake up and go, oh my goodness, what a surprise. (laughs) And that hit me just like a two by four. Do you ever have those spiritual two by four moments? I have them often. I think God needs to get my attention a lot more often than maybe he needs. You know, it's, it's, it's the ones where God's Holy Spirit just takes the two by four and smacks you square in the head, kind of like grandpa used to do with the mule to get him to stop. You know, those he touched me moments (laughs) when we all of a sudden realize. And I had this, honestly, God took this initiative, drawing humanity back to himself so that he can have relationship with us, restore within us the image of God that was broken by the intrusion of sin into the world. God never had a plan B. It was always plan A. There was no plan B. And guess what? You and I are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Regardless of the station of our lives, each and every one of us are in need of a savior. Whether you're a doctor, a scientist, a professor, whether you're a garbage collector, a fast food worker, a night janitor, it doesn't matter. We are all in need of a savior, Jesus Christ. And when we come to see Jesus, when we come to see him and he invites us to come and follow He has a way of transforming us and changing us and making us whole to become the men and women that we were designed to be. And so I want us to hear the story of two people this morning who had that kind of transformation in their lives. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what is happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he ordered the man be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what? do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Did you ever notice? I'm going to take a moment here. Did you ever notice? We're going to keep going with the scriptures, so hang on a second. Did you ever notice 
Jesus drew attention, not necessarily to himself, but the Bible says they praised God, kind of leaning towards God the Father. Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and isn't it interesting? Isn't it so very interesting that that's what Jesus' goal was the whole time? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Let's continue on. They also praised God. They entered into Jericho. Jesus entered into Jericho and was passing through a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, I always like that part because I'm short, right? I liked the fact that there are short people in the Bible. I find myself in this story. Just going to tell you that right now. He was so short, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The word of God for the people of God. Can we all say together, Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. You know, sin has a way of leveling the playing field. It honestly doesn't matter what sin. Sin is sin is sin is sin, right? I mean, we kind of want to think about this for a minute. We kind of want to say, yeah, but you know, my gossiping really is not as bad as, and we compare it to somebody else, right? I've been guilty of that. Tell me you haven't been guilty of that. Yeah, no, we've all done that, right? Well, this little sin over here, it's not really that bad. I'll just tell a little white lie, right? Right? We've all done that. But you know what the thing of it is? Everyone is in need of a savior. And I know I shared some of this on, on Friday's devotion. If you picked up the devotions, you're gonna get a little bit of a repeat because I wanted to share with you what sin is. Somebody said, well, Dan, what is sin? I remember I had this, this student when I was doing youth ministry over in Kennewick. We had this student who came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Dan, uh, if I was to curse and swear as a car was coming to hit me in another car and I died, would I go to hell? And I said, yes, you would go to hell. And I just walked off. <laughs> and I left that teenager mouth open, hitting the floor, and he's just, he's just paralyzed standing there. And I came back to him. I said, listen, listen. If you're in a car wreck and you see this car coming towards you and you say a word you probably aren't not supposed to be saying, okay, I don't think God's going to send you to hell for that. But if God is telling you to clean up your mouth, then you need to do that because God is convicting you of something you ought not to be doing. And here is this definition of sin. Susanna Wesley, John Wesley's mother, has this wonderful way of looking past his, her son's question of, Mom, what is sin? Okay? And she gives this answer. 
Put it up on the screen for me. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. Do you ever wonder if John Wesley went to his mom saying, hey, mom, what is sin? And he wanted this list of rules of do's and don'ts. Do you ever wonder if, if she saw past that and answered, you know, his question from the heart of what the real matter is? And here's the thing. This sin issue I'm going to look at all of you today. I'm going to look even at you, you guys who are at home or wherever you are. I'm going to look at you today and I'm going to tell you that sin is not your fault. Boy, now I got some attention, don't I? I got some people that all of a sudden I watch. Wait, what, what, what? We're Nazarenes. We're holiness people. Sin definitely is my fault. Nope. Sin isn't your fault. Remember when sin entered into this world, it was with Adam and Eve, right? Do we remember the story where there were, there were, God had created all of this in the Garden of Eden. He had created all sorts of wonderful things. And he told them, you know what? There's so much for you guys to go do. Go, and he said, subdue the earth. That word we in today kind of translate that word to conquer, right? When I subdue something, it's conquer. But you know what? If you go back to the original languages, what God was saying is, go discover how I did this. He told Adam and Eve, go check out this creation that I have made. And by the way, you can eat of anything you want to except for <laughs> the one tree. There's one tree in here I don't want you to eat, eat from. I don't know if God put a little sign out there. It said tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Remember, there were two special trees in the garden. There was the tree of everlasting life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And I don't know, maybe, maybe like, you know, those little signs we see posted in the yard. Maybe God had a little sign there, tree of knowledge of good. I don't know. But he somehow had differentiated these two trees. And he told Adam and Eve, he said, you can't eat from this one tree, ever seem odd to you? I mean, it does kind of seem odd to me that God would say, don't do that. Because what's the first thing that we do when somebody says, don't do that? We do that, right? Don't look down. What's the first thing you do? You look down, right? Somebody stuck up high. If I happen to be precariously falling off of that thing, but I'm stuck, do not tell me to not look down off the balcony. Just get up there and help me, okay? Okay? That, don't tell me that, because what's the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to look down. It was kind of odd as I read this this week and thought about this this week, because knowing the difference between right and wrong, the knowledge of good and evil, right? That seemed kind of odd to me that God didn't want them to know that. Now, I'm making an assumption in that statement because I don't believe it was necessarily that God didn't want them to know that. If we look at the story of creation and we see in the first few chapters of Genesis, God came to them, came down to earth and walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. He was discipling them. He was teaching them. 
Doesn't it only make sense that God wants to do things in his time and with his plan? And it wasn't his plan for them to know that yet. You see, we want to take on this idea that maybe God didn't want them to know the difference between right and wrong. Okay? But you know what? He just simply wanted them to love him and obey him. And that was it. Pretty simple, isn't it? Sometimes I think we make this way too hard. We make it too difficult. It's really simple. From the beginning of time, God has just simply asked humanity, love me and obey me. Love me and obey me. Look at at all the books that Moses wrote. Look at the, the time of the judges and the time of the prophet. And even Jesus spoke about this one way or another. Oh, yeah, he was asked that question that one day by that teacher of the law. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. It's part of the Shema. It's part of what comes out of Deuteronomy. Uh, And then he adds this word and strength, which actually means all of your muchness. That's not really a word, but it is. That's the idea behind the phrase. So Jesus adds in there pretty much love God with every bit of who you are. Everything that you can love God with, love God. Oh, and this one is just as important as the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And some smarty pants said, well, who's my neighbor? right? Because there's always got to be one. There's always got to be one. You know, I don't care what, what, you know, group, you know, the group of kids that are students that are upstairs and, and the group of, of children that are over here in, in the children's church, there's always got to be one. There just is. It's how it is. I don't know why. I don't make up the rules. I just go along with it. I understand it. There's just got to be one. When I had kids at home all the time, there just had to be one, one who would say something like, well, who's my neighbor? Kind of like John Wesley asking his mom, what is sin? If we look at the story of creation, we see God visiting in the cool of the evening, wanting their obedience, their love, and that's all he's asked for. But you know what? We really don't know something. Here's something that I also found out interesting. We really don't have a time frame between the time when God set them loose in the garden and the time that they ate the fruit from the tree. We don't know how long that was. And we know that in the beginning, before sin entered into the earth, right? Before sin entered into this world, Adam and Eve were created perfectly. Do you realize to be human and to live into what God intended and designed humanity to be is that we would live a perfect life. Now, let's talk about perfect for just a moment. So because I don't want this, um, we often think of perfect as being without blemish, right? We think about it. Now, I see there's pews here in the church. A lot of times I like to use the idea of a chair. We got a chair up here on the platform. I can tell you there are scratches and blemishes on that chair. Now, is that chair perfect? Well, maybe not from that standpoint. But I guarantee you that as Miss Jennifer sat on that chair this morning, it held her hind in up off the ground. Right? And if I was to go sit on it, it would do the same thing for me. It would do and function for what it was purposely designed for. Just like the pews y'all are sitting in here, just like maybe the recliner you're sitting at at home. um, Those things are doing what they were designed for. Are they without blemish or scar or wrinkle? No, probably not. 
not unless they're brand new and they've never been sat in, but they are doing what they are designed for. We were designed to live in right relationship with God the Father and with each other. Isn't that awesome? That's how God designed us to live. That's why this last year, that's part of why this last year has been so difficult is because we haven't been able to be with each other like we usually are. Do you know that people are finding that out and that all sorts of different doctors and scientists and stuff are talking about what isolation has done to humanity? And now we're, we're kind of living with some of that aftermath. It's, it's starting to come out. It's starting to creep out. We're starting to understand we aren't designed to live in isolation. We're not designed to be hermits. That's not how God designed us. And, and, you know, it's interesting that as I see God reaching out to Adam and Eve, you know what? He, it wasn't that he was holding back. God wanted them to know the difference between the right and the wrong. It was the serpent who said, eh, God just doesn't want you to know. It was the serpent who, the Bible says, tricked them into thinking that God didn't have their very best at the center of his heart. And we know that God loves us. He created us. He didn't just speak us into existence. The Bible says he, he came in and he took the dust and he formed the dust of the ground with his hands. We wear the fingerprints of God all over us. God wanted to explain things to Adam and Eve. God wanted to teach them as he felt he needed to teach them. Let me ask you something this morning. We're going to pause for a minute and think about and contemplate your life. And I want to ask you, are there things in your life that you have taken control of? And this is going to sound silly. So you can laugh because you think you know better than God. We do that. We do that. I, I love watching movies. I, I love, especially if I find a movie that I really like, you know, like I grew up with the Star Wars, you know, and so I do like the additional movies that they have made since then, but Star Wars is really those first three movies that George Lucas made. I, I love watching those things. There's, there's a movie that I love watching um, that has Steve Carell in it. It's called Evan Almighty. And it's a kind of a current day telling of Noah's Ark. And, and at one point in time, Evan, he's got plans. Boy, he's got plans. He's going to save the world. He becomes a congressman and they're going to save the world. They're going to change the world. And he has plans and, and uh, God, God and him kind of have a discussion about this. And they're outside and Evan in this movie, in this movie, he's kind of a clean freak almost like a germaphobe. I mean, he'll sit there and pluck his nose hairs out one by one by one, you know, to make sure they're all perfectly clean and shave 10 different times to make sure he's all, you know, and there's this dog outside, this stray dog. Now, how many of you have seen a stray dog lately? They're not very pretty, right? We see them on them heart-wrenching commercials on TV, right? That want us to give to the Humane Society and those kind of things. And, um, this scroungy stray dog comes up and he just wants a drink of water. And Evan's like, don't give that dog a drink of water. His fleas will be in the house. I mean, he just goes on and on and on. God and Evan are having a little discussion. Morgan Freeman shows up. He's playing God in the movie. And Evan tells God, I got these plans. 
And I love the reaction of Morgan Freeman's character because I honestly believe when we tell God that we have these plans, I think God reacts in this way. He laughs. In the, in the movie, in the movie, Morgan Freeman just gives one of these big old belly laughs and just erupts in laughter. And he says, plans, you've got plans. That's, that's a good one, Evan. That's a good one. How many of us, though, make plans like this and we take control of these things in our lives because we believe we can do better? It sounds silly, but you know what? That's what got us here. It's not that silly to think of that because that's what Adam and Eve did. All they wanted to do was wanted to know the difference between right and wrong in their time frame rather than wait for God and his no harm in that. It's a good thing, right? Oh, but it helps us to remember that we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same place. Being in this boat, being born into sin isn't my fault, but I'm going to tell you this. It's my responsibility to deal with it. It may not be your fault. It may not be your fault. It may not be your fault at home. But you know what? It is your responsibility to deal with the sin that we are born into in this world. And we've talked about this, this journey of grace, discipleship, the journey we call life. When we, we live it with Jesus as Savior, we discover that it is true that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that sneaky grace that goes before God's Holy Spirit, he sends it out there to anyone who will listen. And today we're going to talk about saving grace. I know um, that in our passage this morning, we talked about two vastly different people. We talked about blind Bartimaeus, the beggar. Now, Luke doesn't identify him, but Mark does. We know this is Bartimaeus. And we talk about the other who is Zacchaeus, a tax collector. We got to realize they do share some similarities in that they would have been looked down upon in their society. Bartimaeus is blind. He can't, he can't, um, he can't contribute. There's nothing for him to do except for what? Sit and beg. That's how he contributes to the family, Right. And then we have Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, and not just a, a tax, he was a chief tax collector, which meant he probably had other tax collectors underneath him, and he was very wealthy. And the reason he was very wealthy, well, he's probably skimming a little off the top. In other words, if he came to write a tax bill, he would probably write it a little bit higher so that he could turn over the right amount to the Roman government and then keep some for himself beyond what he was paid. Does that make sense? And we see how, how Bartimaeus probably would have been looked upon because he was blind and because it was a physical affirmity, um, because he was blind from probably birth, uh, the people would have looked at him and said, what did his parents do that was so sinful to cause his blindness? What did he do in the womb to call his blindness? Remember later on in the gospel, we hear a story about that. We hear a story about a person where they actually asked the question, 
So we see both of these men, but now they also have some similarities. There's a brokenness about them. Part of them has fractured how they look upon themselves. There's probably relationships that are damaged. Their perception of themselves and others damaged. Why? Because sin is in this world. You know what? You and I don't live in a perfect world. We live outside of the Garden of Eden. How many of us can relate to broken relationships, broken perceptions, feeling isolated or alienated. You see, the thing of it is, is that sin corrupts and it perverts and it undermines the life that God has called us to live, a full and abundant life. And when you look at both of these characters, when you look at Bartimaeus and when you look at Zacchaeus, they're in the same boat. Two vastly different pieces of society and yet they're in the same boat. Jesus in both stories is the answer of saving grace for these two men and he takes and he makes time for both of them. They're both completely dependent upon Christ. I don't know if you picked up on this, but the disciples and the people around Jesus did not want Bartimaeus to cry out for him. They did not want Jesus to take the time to deal with this dirty old blind beggar sitting on the side of the road. And I love what he did anyways. Because what did he do? He yelled even more loudly. He cried out to God. He knew that if Jesus would just come, his faith, his hope, his heart knew, if Jesus just says it and does it, this is the Messiah. If he just does this, my life will be different. And the result of God, of Jesus, healing this man is the worship of God the Father. Look at Zacchaeus. <laughs> he's so insignificant, the Bible calls him short and small to the point he's got to climb up a tree to see Jesus in the crowd. I, I, I can so relate to Zacchaeus. I so love that. I do. They're both completely dependent upon Christ. They both hear the same word for their salvation, even though they're in vast different situations. And just like them, you and I are in the same boat. So there are three quick things. Now that I'm going to, that was the introduction. Now I'm going to start my sermon. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There are three things, though, I want us to remember about saving grace. The first thing is saving grace lifts us from our misery. Saving grace lifts us from our misery. Think about it for a moment. It may not change our circumstance completely. It may not shifting, but it changes us somehow. And when it changes and transforms our heart, God's saving grace lifts us from our misery. Whether it's the physical limitations, whether it's spiritual limitations, whether it's emotional or relational issues, when we experience the restoration of God's image within us, when that begins, there is something that changes and it lifts us from our misery. I may have shared this story with you before, but it is one of my favorite stories about me to share. And I think um, it's kind of hard for me to share it this morning because Pastor Terry's here today from Hermiston and he might probably remember this. 
I was sitting in a room for my ordination interview in a suit. First black suit I'd ever owned. Someone bought it for us. <laughs> bought it for me to wear for ordination. So sitting in there, suit and tie. Bobby is sitting next to me all dressed up and everything. We have this big room up at Pine Low and there's all these men and women pastors across the district. I'm pretty sure Terry was there because I'm pretty sure he was the district secretary at the time. And we're before the board, the board of ministry, we call it now. And they begin asking us questions to test me to see if I'm ready for ordination. You know, in the Church of the Nazarene, we take ordination fairly seriously. We don't just say, oh, yeah, hey, you delivered a great sermon this morning. Sound good. Tickled my ears. Here you go. There's your license, and uh, we're going to ordain you. We don't do that. You go through education. You have time and service. You have these interviews that you do where you are examined by different pastors on the district, and then you go before the board. And as we are there, um, you know, I must have answered their questions in an okay way, because of course I'm standing before you here now. <laughs> but I answered their questions, and then somebody said, does anybody want to give a testimony about Dan and Bobby? And I was kind of a little nervous, because some of these people I'd known for a while, and they knew me before. They knew me when I had walked away from Jesus. They knew me before some of that transforming grace and that saving grace and that sanctifying grace and all of that had really picked up. And of course, my good friend, Dr. Norm Stickle piped up and he started to speak and I said, now, wait a minute, you were my pastor. I sat in your office as your congregant. There are some things you can't tell these people. I reminded him of that. And then my good friend said something that I will take with me, I think, all the way to heaven. He said, if you had known Dan and Bobby, if you had known Dan and Bobby, when they showed up on the door of my church, I had not seen anybody as spiritually bankrupt as these two young people and their three kids. If you had known them before and could see what God has done in their life, there would be no question he's ready for ordination. I even had one of the pastors on, <laughs> that sat on that board is like, are you okay with that being in the minutes? You know, are you okay with Norm saying that, you know, that you were spiritually bankrupt? And I said, if you knew me, I was raised in the church. But Bobby and I had, Bobby was raised in the church, but we both walked away from the Lord. And that was a very accurate description of where we were when God's sneaky grace got us back into church. And then he began to work in us and eventually through us. It's the restoration of God's image within us. The misery of life is removed. In our story today, Bartimaeus is now going to be able to do more than just sit and beg. And not only that, he's going to give God the glory. It's in a subsistence society. We don't understand that because we don't, we're not like that. We have refrigerators and freezers, right? We got re, I always use this illustration. We, got re, we don't understand subsistence 
living subsistence. Can I say that word today? We don't understand what that means. We don't understand working today for my food tomorrow because we have jobs and we get paid on a regular basis and we have refrigerators and freezers. We have ways to keep food for, for weeks and even months. We don't get it. But now blind Bartimaeus is jumping up and praising God because he can do something. He can learn a skill or a trade and be part of society. And Zacchaeus, he's excited because he's no longer going to be shunned because he's not going to be padding his pockets anymore with all of these things and acquiring wealth. He already gave half of his wealth to the poor. He's paying everybody back plus four times the amount. And you know what that brings me to? That brings me to my next point, which is that God's saving grace restores us to our community. I'm not sure how many of you over this last year uh, have felt this way, but when we started gathering back in the church last September, I'm telling you, there weren't many people here. <laughs> there weren't as many as there are here this morning. But when we started that back up, I, there was something within me that just jumped they just jumped up and down. There were people here. And even Pastor Jerry, I'll never forget that this morning. He was just blown away and excited by the fact there are people here. You know, it wasn't just five people on the platform spread all out, all, you know, all over the place. And, and a few people in the, in the booth and pastor down here. We were together as the body again, and there was something about being restored to our community that changed, that did something. Both of these men lived isolated lives. Zacchaeus had all the money in the world, but nobody liked him. You know that because when Jesus went to go to his house and do that, what did the people say? The people said, oh, he's going to go be a guest of a sinner. Boy, I hope somebody can say that to me someday or about me someday. Pastor Terry, I hope that you don't go be with Jesus before you can say that about me. You know that? Amen? Seriously. I seriously want to be able to be that to be said about me. But both of these guys are restored to the community and they're going to praise God about it. And the last thing that I want to talk about is this God's saving grace doesn't just restore us, but it commissions us. Think about Zacchaeus. What does he do? He gives half of his possessions to the poor. He starts going at, uh, to work towards paying people back with interest. There are more things for him to do. He experiences salvation but there's something for him to do. And you know, I think about that for a moment and I have to tell you that oftentimes we look at conversion of somebody, we look at salvation, even our own salvation, and we think about what we are saved from. And that's important because I don't wanna live a life of sin anymore. I know how bound up I was, how bound up I was to alcohol and cigarettes. I was controlled by those things. How bound up, even as a teenager, as I was to painkillers and pain pills and prescription drugs, I was bound up by those things. Do you not understand how freeing salvation can be? 
And I love the fact that I was saved from those things. But you know what? We're also saved to do something. Did you know that? Look at the example of Bartimaeus. What happened? Everything resulted in people worshiping God. Other people, it doesn't say, it just says the people around there all gave God worship for his healing. Wouldn't it be awesome if you went home today and something happened to where God showed up and did something in your neighborhood and all of a sudden, all of your neighbors just erupt out in the worship of God. Guess what? That's what we are called to. That's what we are commissioned to. We're not just saved from, but we are also saved to go and to do. We look at this saving grace and that leaves us here looking at ourselves. Where do we find ourselves in this story today? I want us to take a moment and think about that. Where am I in this story today? Am I the one sitting on the roadside in the dirt? Alms, alms for the poor. Am I hiding in the tree, just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, but needing his saving grace to invade my heart? Maybe you've already experienced what it means to begin this journey of grace and you're looking for what's next. What's going to happen next? I'm trusting Jesus as my savior, but there's a lot of things that I'm unsure of and I don't know what's next. We don't see a lot of the what next, do we, in the Bible? I kind of like that because the possibilities are so much. I couldn't tell you what's next. I couldn't tell you, you know, even, even 15 years ago that I'd be standing here this morning. I couldn't have told you that two years ago. Wherever it is that you find yourself this morning, I want you to know that Jesus is with you. His Holy Spirit is going before. His Holy Spirit is continuing to do the work as long as you allow him to. Jesus is here with us. He's here with you at home. I want us to take a quick moment and just very quietly, very silently, wait on the Lord. And I want you to do something. I want you to ask him, where am I in this story? Am I saved from sin? But what am I saved to? Allow him to speak to you. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, as we sit here, as we stand here, wherever we are today within the sound of my voice, Lord God, we come to you and ask that your Holy Spirit 
would speak to us. And not just where are we as individuals, but that's where it begins. Lord God, what is it that you have saved me to? What have you saved me from? Your saving grace is so important in our lives, but it's not the end. And so, Father God, today we ask that your Holy Spirit would once again speak to us. Speak to us within the depths of our soul. Do that deeper work within us. Lord God, you didn't call us. You didn't save us. You didn't make a way for us to come to know you just so we could sit on our salvation. But Father God, we need your guidance. We need your direction. And today we begin. We begin again and we begin new to ask you, what is it, Lord God? What is it that you would have me do in your kingdom? Lord God, you have done so many great things in my life. You have changed, literally changed who I am. You have made me complete and made me whole, but Lord God, there's more. I know there's more because you are Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No matter how amazing you are, you are more amazing. No matter how wonderful you are, you are more wonderful. And Lord God, I know that you have called me to come be a part of what you are doing here, not just at Richland Church of the Nazarene, but in my neighborhood, at the grocery store, at Walmart, down the road, at the gym. Lord God, you have called us to live and to be a light that shines. And so, Father God, today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal to each and every one of us where we can come alongside of you and work in your kingdom. Not that we can earn anything, not that we can grow our church, Lord God, but that your kingdom would benefit for your glory and your honor and your worship and your praise. Lord God, that's, that's, that's our heart's desire, Lord God, is that you would not just work in us, but that you would also work through us so that your name would be known around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray our Lord and Savior. Amen.